I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of John. John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16a will be our text this morning. John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16a will be our text this morning. And I do now invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore he delivered me over to you. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled when we read the account of Jesus' trials, the verdict, and his crucifixion. Yet at the same time, we are well aware that you are the only sovereign God and that you're in control even in these moments that we read of. So Lord, I pray that you would help us by your spirit this morning to hear your word, to understand your word, to take your word to heart, Lord. 
that we might marvel at the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, would everyone hearing my voice marvel at Christ today. Help us to this end, through the preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning contains the verdict of the two trials found in the preceding chapter. As we went through chapter 18, we saw that Jesus was tried first by the Jewish official, officials and then later by the Roman officials. And now, in our text, the verdict is announced authoritatively by Pontius Pilate and the authority that was vested in him. But before that verdict comes, there's a series of ironic events that takes place. And we, as readers of the gospel, we, we get a fuller picture than many of the people who were even there. We observe the backstage and the front stage happenings of the play, if you will. In other words, we observe what happened to Jesus behind closed doors by the hands of the Roman officials, and we also observe what happens to Jesus in public, along with the response of the Jews. And on one hand, and in one sense, our text this morning is a very man-centered text, and that it displays what men are doing to the man Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, and in another sense, our text is very God-centered in that it displays the sovereign plan of God being carried out, being worked out by God the Son, Jesus Christ. And so as we come to this text this morning, beloved, what I want you to do is I want you to, to read this text, to hear this text, and to hear this sermon with this frame of mind, which is that God often accomplishes his sovereign plans and his eternal purposes within human history by means of choices that men make. And this reality is observed in the arrest, the trials, the condemnation, and the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that God is still working out his plans and his purposes very oftentimes in the same way today. And so the proper response is that we would stand in awe of our God and that we would take heart in our various circumstances and situations as you and I remember the life and passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that our passage helps us to do just that this morning. This brings us to the main idea of this text, and therefore the main idea of this sermon. In this text, we find at least three features that emphasize the human nature and humility of Jesus Christ during his earthly mission to redeem his people, so that he, his redeemed people would exalt him now, knowing that a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's a mouthful, huh? So we could put it this way also. In short, 
the humanity and humility of the God-man in his work of salvation causes his people to lift high the name of Jesus until he comes again. Or in other words, we could say this. This text displays the reality that Jesus came to be not served, but a servant himself so that we might respond in humble, exuberant worship until everyone acknowledges him as they ought. Or, for good measure, we could put it another way. We could say that when we study passages like this, we find features that remind us that the word truly became flesh. Yet we must also remember that he is truly God. And such realities, brothers and sisters, cause us, cause the church to truly worship Christ as we await his return, when all people will see him as he truly is. Or, as I said originally, we find three features. Three features in our text this morning, each emphasizing the human nature and humility of the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly mission to his redeemed people, such that we might exalt him here and now, beloved, knowing that the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And those three features are provided in the outline. The first feature is the observance of the king. The second feature is the questioning of the king. And the third feature is the deliverance of the king. Let us begin with feature number one, the observance of the king. Look with me, please, at verses one through five. The text again reads, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, am I, see I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. In verse 1, we see that Pilate had Jesus flogged. It's highly unlikely that Pilate personally flogged Jesus. That wouldn't be done in that day. But rather, what I believe John is doing here, he is recording this event in such a way to express that Pilate has the responsibility for what is being done to Jesus because he is the one with authority. Despite Pilate believing that Jesus was not guilty, Pilate obstructs justice. This wasn't uncommon. As a matter of fact, it was very common for Roman officials to flog innocent men if they disturbed the peace, even if they had a good reason to disturb the peace. Pilate's job really was, hey, we're going to put you over this place, give you this jurisdiction, and you just make sure that everything goes smoothly. And so, perhaps Pilate trying to appease the Jewish leadership by having Jesus flogged, he tells Jesus to go away, and he flogs him. I think it's easy for you and I to gloss over that word flog. We read the text, and 
We maybe make it akin to, oh, Jesus was beaten. But the first century reader would read this text and they would understand the unbelievable violence that would have taken place. Jesus would have been tied to a post or he would have been thrown to the ground and he would have been stripped bare. And he would have been whipped. Not with just any kind of whip. Rather, this would be a whip of leather straps and leather strips. And at the end of each one of those straps and strips would be pieces of bone and or metal, such that when one is whipped, it would dig into their flesh. And when the whip was pulled away, it would tear the flesh. The Romans didn't exercise 40 lashes minus one, as the Jews did. We have no idea how many times Jesus was whipped with this whip over and over and over and over again. However, John spends more time focusing on the shame. He spends more time focusing on the shame that Jesus experienced rather than the flogging itself. In verses 2 and 3, we're told that the Roman soldiers put a crown of thorns on his head, dressed him in a purple robe, purple being a royal color. And then they mockingly lauded him as king of the Jews as they hit him with their hands. One commentator said this, The scene depicted by verses 2 and 3 is a theatricalized parody and a satirical imitation of the royal coronation of a king with a crown and a royal colored robe serving as the marks of investiture. Close quote. In other words, through brutality and injustice, Jesus became the laughingstock of the Roman soldiers. And in this scene, what you and I are to see is the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ the one who had no sin, yet in this moment, at this time, is being identified with human sin as a representative for his people. We're reminded of Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, a prophecy regarding Jesus. It reads, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And Matthew, Mark, tell us that these Roman soldiers did spit on Jesus as well. And here's the irony. As we've worked our way through the Gospel of John, we see ironic moment after ironic moment. And the irony of these soldiers mockingly hailing Jesus during his state of humiliation is due to the fact that it is because of the humiliation of Jesus that he will be hailed forevermore as Lord of all. We remember Philippians 2 here. The Apostle Paul tells us, he describes the humiliation of Christ, uh, that he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, becoming obedient, obedient even to the point of death on a cross. But then what does he say in verses 9 through 11? He says, therefore. In other words, because of the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, because Christ humbled himself, he will be exalted by all. Because Christ humbled himself, he will be exalted by all. And we understand that he is exalted by God now. And he is acknowledged as such in the church. Yet, Philippians 2 tells us that every living creature in every dimension will acknowledge him as such in the future. So what do we think? What does that mean for you and I, brothers and sisters? The Lord of glory. All authority had been given to him. Yet he humbles himself, acting in our stead, that we might be exalted in the future. And then he tells us to go and to do likewise. Of course, we remember in this moment that God opposes the proud and that he gives grace to the humble. We know that he humbles the proud, but that he exalts the humble. And so we must be in awe of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in this moment, but that's not enough. We must get on our knees and humble ourselves before God such that we might also humble ourselves before one another to the glory of God. Jesus Christ does say, come, follow me. Pilate, as Jesus is humbling himself, proclaims, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. Pilate is saying that there is no legal basis upon which he should act against Jesus. That being true, then Jesus obviously should not have been flogged. But we take a step back from this particular narrative, and we remind ourselves of the meta-narrative, the big picture of the gospel. What does the Bible regularly do, particularly in the New Testament? It regularly presents the idea that believers are in Christ. That believers in Christ are said to be with Christ or in Christ to participate somehow in the life of Christ. And theologians have articulated this reality by what is known as the doctrine of union with Christ. That we are united with Christ. And the doctrine of union with Christ teaches that believers are in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, supernaturally united to Christ in his life and in his death, and in his burial, and in his resurrection, and in his ascension, and in his glorification, such that we, believers in Christ, receive spiritual life, and legal or judicial righteousness, and everlasting intimacy with God through Christ, among other blessings. That's what the Bible teaches that's what the Bible says about you and I if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. What to God? What to God we think deeply about these things and rejoice? Why in the world does this matter when I'm preaching on the, the deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it matters for this reason. Although there is no guilt to be found in Jesus himself, there is guilt. 
to be found in those who are in Jesus Christ. Pilate's words are correct. Pilate can find no guilt in Jesus because there is no guilt to be found in Jesus. However, Jesus served as what? As the representative for his guilty people. And so we ask ourselves, why the flogging? Why the shame? Why the cross? Why the death? Why the burial of a man, the only man, who had no guilt? And we humbly, yet joyfully, Say, because for our sake, God prepared him to be sin, although he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And thus we are humbled by the humbled one. We are humbled by the humble one, and we worship him. But on that day, beloved, he was not worshiped as he ought to have been. Rather, verse 5 tells us that Pilate brought him out, draped in his distorted regalia, and Pilate said, Behold the man. This is the observance of the king, that he's brought out, and Pilate tells the people to observe him, to behold, to see the man. He is presented as the man, and I am convinced that Pilate spoke better than he knew. He's not presented as a man, rather, the definite article is there in the Greek, he is the man. But in what what sense is he the man? We would respond, he is the one and only God-man. He is the word who was with God and who at the same time was God in the beginning. He is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He is, as Paul will tell us, the second Adam who assumed a human nature so that he would succeed where the first Adam did not succeed and that he would overcome the first Adam's sin. Would we behold the man, saints? Would we glory and boast and exult in this God-man that we call our Lord and our Savior and our King? As the King of the Jews, he was standing before the supposed leaders of Israel. However, he was not lauded. He was not adored. Rather, he stood before them disfigured, bathed in his own blood. And again, the echoes of Isaiah cry out to us in this scene. We're mindful of Isaiah 52, verse 14, which reads, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. This is where Jesus is at this point, at this moment. Flogged in our stead, beaten, spat on, mocked, ridiculed. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, was 
observed by many on that day. But he was not observed how he should have been observed. And not much has changed in our day. Not much has changed in our day. Many people say many things about the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question is this, for our purposes this morning. How is it that you are observing Jesus Christ? How is it that you are observing Jesus Christ? This brings us to our second feature, which is the questioning of the king in verses 6 through 11. Look with me at verses 6 through 11, please. The text again reads, When the chief priests and the officials saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In verse 6, we see that instead of beholding the Son of Man in awe as they ought, the Jewish leadership calls for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly why Pilate had Jesus flogged. We don't know the motives of his heart, but certainly we can come to the conclusion that his intention was not to add fuel to the fire. But that's exactly what he did. He added fuel to the fire. And for the first time in the Gospel of John, we see the word crucify. Crucify. And in the Greek, the term is in the imperative mood, which means that it's not really so much a suggestion as it is a demand. They want this man that they are supposed to behold to be crucified and to be crucified immediately. And note that John attributes the call to crucify Jesus to two groups of people from the crowd, the chief priests and the officials or the officers. And this is significant as it gives us some measure of insight that it was the Jewish leadership that led the charge to have Jesus crucified, yet the majority of the nation followed in that charge. And because Pilate found no guilt in Jesus, he tells them, no, you take him yourselves. And you crucify him yourselves. But the Jews reply, according to our law, he should die because he has made himself the son of God. And here we have really the core issue. It comes to light in this verse, in verse 7, as the Jews offer an explanation to Pilate. Up to this point, we don't get much, but now they're going to make it explicit. And the law that they seem to be referring to is Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. Leviticus 24, 16 reads, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall he be put 
to death. And the name of the Lord is really more than just a name. It's more than just what we think of as a name, at least. Rather, the divine name represents the very nature of God himself. Thus, blaspheming can be one of two things. It can be speaking negatively about the Lord, or it can also be the sense of making irreverent claims about the Lord, such as a man claiming to be equal with God. That's the charge. The question is this, did Jesus ever do this? Did Jesus ever claim to make himself equal with God or the Son of God? Well, let's look back in a few passages in the Gospel of John. We see in John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Jesus conversing with the Jews, it says that Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And then look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You know what Jesus never does? He never tells the Jews that they have misinterpreted his words or his actions. They come to the conclusion that Jesus is making himself equal with God. And Jesus' silence says, yes and amen. I am. Look at John 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego me. The same idea, the same word that is the divine name in uh, the, the translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so what did they do? They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In other words, they're, they're ready to do what Leviticus 24.16 says. He has blasphemed the name of the Lord, and so it's our right to, to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, for it was not yet his time. Chapter 10, verse 30 and 31. This is perhaps as explicit as you can get. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Yes, Jesus does make himself equal with God. Yes, Jesus does claim to be the Son of God. But that's only a crime if it weren't true. And in this case, and it is the only case, every word that is uttered from his mouth is true. For he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. In all these cases, Jesus makes himself equal with God and the Jewish leaders were ready to kill him, but Jesus somehow got away. I just love that. All right, we're, we're going we're gonna to get you now. No, who's in control? Who's in control of this whole situation? The Lord is in control. 
And so eventually the, the Jewish leadership, they became afraid of what the crowd would do to them if they killed Jesus. And so that seems to be part of the reason that they are seeking help from Rome to kill Jesus. But have you ever wondered what God is doing behind the scenes? At one moment, the Jews are willing and ready to kill Jesus, and then they're not because there's concern, and so they go to Rome. It seems to me that God is intending for both the Jews and the Romans to play a significant role in the death of Jesus Christ such that Jews and Gentiles are active participants, are active participants who bear guilt for crucifying the Lamb of God. In these events, it seems that the Jewish world and the Gentile world are centered around the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, even if the participants themselves are unaware. Why is this important? Well, we're reminded of what John the Baptist said. As he sees Jesus walking, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Jews. Nope. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Gentiles. Nope. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jews and Gentiles participate because the entire human race is now understood to be either Jewish or Gentile. He is at work in this moment. Both Jews are active and Gentiles are active, but he is doing a great work for the salvation of his people who are both Jewish and Gentile. And if that is what God is doing behind the scenes, then how is he using the choices of men to bring about his plan? It seems that the Jews are now seeking to force Pilate's hand. One commentator notes, the Jews are demanding that Pilate use his Roman political authority to support and facilitate their Jewish religious authority. Pilate was placed by the Romans to uphold the local laws and the, tra the traditions of the Jews, in, and in this way, God is working out his purposes, both in the Jewish and the Gentile world. And notice the response of Pilate. Pilate became very afraid, or even more afraid, depending on your translation. There's debate concerning why Pilate became even more afraid. Why is he afraid in this moment? And some suggest that it's simply a fear of man, that he's feeling the pressure of the desires of the Jewish people, but at the same time, he's trying to think through how he can be wise in, in uh, honoring Caesar as well. But it doesn't seem, at least in this case, I think there's some truth to that, but at least in this case, it doesn't seem that's what causes him to be even more afraid. Look at what the text says. It says, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more or very afraid. It's the statement that causes him to be even more afraid. And Matthew tells us that Pilate's wife told him to have nothing to do with this righteous man, Jesus. John doesn't tell us that, but she sends, while he's on the beam seat, while he's on the judgment seat, she, it's called a seat, not a sheet, while he's on the judgment seat, she sends word to him, don't have anything to do with this man. Now Pilate hears that Jesus has made himself the son of God. 
And when he hears this, he becomes even more afraid. Two things are going on in his mind. He says he's the son of God. My wife had dreams, and she's telling me not to deal with this righteous man. We have to remember who Pilate is. Pilate is not a Jew. He's not a monotheist. He doesn't believe in only one God. He was a pagan polytheist, believing in many gods. And he would have grown up hearing stories of human-like gods visiting men. And perhaps Pilate, in this moment, became troubled as he contemplated exactly who this Jesus is. If he were wise, he would have listened to the voice of his wife. And this is just a pastoral aside. Brothers, the Lord saw that man was alone and determined that it was not good for him. And so he created a helper fit for him. You have a helper. You should listen to her. Now back in our text. One commentator said this about Pilate. It is possible that a polytheistic Roman was more open to claims of divine sonship than a monotheist, which facilitates further the irony of the gospel for a Roman outsider proves more ready to believe something about the divine son of God than his own people are. And in the next verse, Pilate asks a question that seems to substantiate, it seems to uh, line up with the idea that he was temporarily concerned about the identity of this man, Jesus. At least for a moment, it seems that he was concerned that Jesus might be some kind of God. And so what does he ask in verse 9? He says, where are you from? Where are you from? And while perhaps Pilate was pondering if Jesus was a man or a God, as readers of the gospel, we oftentimes know the answer to Pilate's questions. Jesus is both God and man, and he has already answered this question explicitly. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven. However, in this instance, Jesus remains silent. You notice how often Jesus doesn't say a word throughout this whole time? He speaks here and there, but never in such a way that it would derail him from going to the cross. Never in such a way that it would lead to a different outcome. Jesus says not a word here. For if he speaks who he truly is, then perhaps Pilate goes a different direction. And we're reminded again of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 10, Pilate, probably irritated by Jesus' lack of response, continued with his questions. He says, you don't speak to me? You don't speak to me. Do you understand what's going on here? I have the authority to do whatever I want to you, and you have the audacity not to answer my questions. I can release you, or I can have you crucified. Oh, Pilate knew who he was talking to. I love Jesus' response. I just love it. But he just says, you would have no authority um, unless it was 
given you from above. And so therefore, who delivered me, he has a greater sin. Jesus is completely and totally in control. Completely and totally in control. And so Jesus says that Pilate's authority is from above. In other words, you have your authority from God. Jesus also says that he came down from above. In other words, Jesus is God. And so here's the craziness. According to the divine nature of Jesus, you have him there looking Pilate in the eye, and he's telling Pilate, hey, man, your authority is from me. Your authority is from me. Yet according to his human nature, he is ready and willing to submit to the authority bestowed upon Pontius Pilate. Stuff is mind-blowing. We, we don't realize how great our Lord is. This is unbelievable. He tells Pilate that the one who handed him over has the greater sin, and we have to be careful here. What he's not doing is absolving Pilate from his actions. That's not what he's doing. Pilate was still responsible for his actions, and Jesus' words, greater sin, shows us that Pilate's actions were sinful. And so what we see in this text is God, he is the source of authority. No man is the source of his own authority. However, God bestows limited authority to various people, and those in authority bear responsibility for their actions. So the high priest, the Jewish officials, and Pilate all have unique authority in this particular situation, and they are responsible for the sinful actions that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. And maybe we see this most clearly in the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. There's just one verse that so beautifully displays the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. We see that, that God is the ultimate cause of all things, yet that there are people who are what's known as proximate causes, who make their own decisions, and people who then also are known as efficient causes, the people who actually put the nails through Jesus' hands. So you see, God is sovereign over all this. Yet he's using the choices of men to bring about his plans and his purposes, and, and our mind is just blown because we don't operate that way. We, we can't do what God does. But God is glorious. Look what Peter says. Peter's preaching to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, God's sovereign, and he wanted this to happen. He willed for it to happen. But you crucified and killed. He's talking to the Jews. Did the Jews put the nails through his hands? No. But did they call for and demand his crucifixion? Yes. So they bear guilt for the action. You crucified and killed by means of what? The efficient cause. By means of the hands of lawless men referring to the Romans. That's responsibility. You're guilty. You're guilty for crucifying the king. You chose. You decided. You have a, a will that, that functions. You're responsible for your choices, yet God is completely and totally sovereign. When you figure that out and it's clear in your mind, holler at your boy because I need help to this day. But the Bible, the Bible teaches it. And so I preach it. God is sovereign over all things. Yet here we see that the Jews and the Gentiles are responsible for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this concludes the questioning of the king. The irony is this. Jesus was questioned by a man who derived his own authority from Jesus himself. Pilate is the one who should have been silent and listened to Jesus. And much like our last feature, not much has changed in our day. How are you questioning Jesus? I would suggest that maybe you should be silent and listen to his words. This brings us to the final feature, the deliverance of the king. Look with me at verse 12 through the end of our passage. Text reads, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king of Caesar, I'm sorry, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, that would have been noon, He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Well, Pilate is on the fence. It was this cry of the Jews that ultimately persuaded him not to release Jesus. In short, Pilate is forced to make a decision. You choose Jesus or you choose Caesar. Which will you choose? There was only room for one king in the Roman Empire, and his name was Caesar, or at least so they thought. And the phrase, a friend of Caesar, It's actually an official title for those who are in the intimate circle of Caesar himself. And it's possible that Pilate being a prefect is in that inner circle. It's possible that this is a direct charge to Pilate himself. You say you're a friend of Caesar? Not if you release this man who's made himself a king. Either way, the Jews are making a social and political charge now even against Pilate. That is, if you release this man, Jesus, who makes himself a king, then you are openly an enemy of Caesar. And after such a public charge, the choice was really either for Pilate to sacrifice himself, that is, his status, and possibly even his own life, or to make Christ a sacrifice. And he chose the latter. If he was fearful that Jesus was the God earlier in this text, Now we see that he's more fearful of Caesar, who's often acknowledged as a god. And here's another pastoral aside. You and I have to make similar choices each and every day. Is it going to be Jesus? Or is it going to be someone else that you acknowledge as king? It can be different for each and every one of us. Jesus or whatever else you're acknowledging as king. Pilate had the insight that we have. 
The answer is simple, beloved. May it always be Jesus. May we bow and exalt and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you don't, but when you don't, and I know you don't, remember that he's on his way to the cross such that we confess and we again say, yes, Jesus, it's you, not I. Jesus or Caesar for Pilate, Jesus or whatever it is that we're trying to make king here in our contemporary context. In verses 13 through 15, ultimately, Pilate finds Jesus guilty. Pilate exclaimed, behold your king. Behold your king. Earlier he said, behold the man. Now he says, behold your king. Pilate's theology is so much better than he's aware of because he is both a king and the man. However, the Jewish authorities did not behold their king. Rather, they declared their allegiance to Rome, shouting, we have no king but Caesar, while demanding the crucifixion of their one true king. And in that passage, we get that brief moment of what? The day of preparation of the Passover. And that reminds us as readers that Jesus was about to be crucified with literally thousands of lambs. They were going to be slaughtered that week for the festivities. And thus we are reminded that Jesus is the true Passover lamb, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And really the climax the climax of our passage is verse 16. It's just those last few words. So he delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. Jesus was delivered to be crucified. Delivered and crucified. Human action carrying out the divine plan. I just want to look at those two words briefly before we close. First, delivered. Such a significant word in New Testament language. And I think oftentimes we have to realize that Jesus, yes, he was delivered, but he was also delivering himself so that you and I might be delivered. The, the word is packed theologically. Listen to a few of these passages that speak of Jesus' deliverance or the word delivered. Matthew 17, verse 22, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Let us never forget, while this is going on, Jesus has predicted this at least three times to all of his disciples, showing all the while what? He's sovereign, he's in control, he knows what's going on. Romans chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. That's verse 25, actually. Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Why is he delivered up? Well, at least one text tells us that we might be forgiven, that our trespasses may be paid for. And then we're told this in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave the same word in the Greek, we could translate it, delivered. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him 
graciously give us all things. So Paul, t- Paul is telling us we need to remember that God himself delivered Jesus Christ so that we see that as a source of encouragement. If he delivered his, his son, how will he not bestow upon us all spiritual blessings? Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Oh, listen to this now. Let's make it personal, saints. Let's make it personal. Paul says, who loved me and gave or delivered himself for me. You hear that? Do you hear that? Yes, we understand the church is more than a bunch of individuals. Yes, we understand that we're a corporate entity. Yes, we understand that God is saving a people for himself. But is the gospel personal to you? That you look at the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, he's delivered for me. He died for for me. That's what Paul models before us here. And so when we read John 19, yes, we understand the the cosmic picture, the global picture, but we can also in a very real way say, this is for me and the place of me and for my benefit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and delivered himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Lastly, regarding delivery, listen to what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 23. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting, literally delivering himself to him who judges justly. There is great theological insight there that it's not so much that Jesus is delivering himself up to Rome. But ultimately, Jesus is delivering himself to God the Father. It's beautiful. Well, what about the word crucified? Let's look at three passages quickly. Dennis mentioned this from the piano this morning. And I thought to myself, oh, the Spirit's moving today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. But we preach Christ crucified. There's a lot of things and a a lot of good things that we must say about Christ. But we can never, ever, ever remove ourselves from the cross. He says, we preach Christ crucified. Yes, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, to people like me, to people like most, if not all of you, it's the power of God. And the wisdom of God. That same book, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is what Paul says. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come preaching to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's there for 18 months, and he's preaching in the city of Corinth, and 
The basis of his ministry was the cross of Christ as he planted that church there. And you know what happened? People believed in the person and work of Christ. Christian, take heart. Apologetics, they're great. Worldview, that's wonderful. Philosophy, fantastic. We can get into that after we preach and we proclaim Christ and him crucified. Lastly, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In the crucifixion of Christ, we see ourselves crucified to the ways of this world. And we hear his voice. We follow him. This is the deliverance of the king. He was delivered to be crucified. He was delivered to die so that you might be delivered from sin. The question is this, have you been delivered through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Beloved, we've seen three features. The observance, the questioning, the deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and these emphasize the human nature and humility of Jesus during his earthly mission. And our response is to behold him and to adore him and to take heart knowing a day is coming wherein every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we would ask that you would help us to behold the man and to behold our king. Help us to think deeply and rightly about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to be more in awe and ever increasingly infatuated by he who assumed a human nature and was crucified in our stead be exalted in our minds and in our hearts and in our conduct that we might be the fragrance of Christ in this world knowing that he was a fragrant offering delivered unto you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.